Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey listeners, I'm Phoebe Lett, one of the producers on The Argument. Our whole crew is cooking up an incredible relaunch of the show, keeping everything you love about The Argument and expanding the voices, ideas, and formats that you get to hear. We'll still be the place for respectful disagreement on the day's biggest issues, where people don't just talk, they listen. We'll have a new host at the helm, but our goal remains the same, that you leave each episode better informed about your own position, about what the other side thinks, and how to disagree without coming to blows. While we work on new episodes, we wanted to share some favorites from the past couple of years. Listening back, something stood out. So much of what David, Michelle, and Ross have argued about is just as relevant today as it was back then. And that's despite all the change we've seen since we launched more than two years ago. First up, a debate from 2018 called, What Do We Do About Climate Change? And by the way, I checked with Ross and he says he's even more correct now than he was back then. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This summer, I went to Portland, Oregon for a few days to visit family. But instead of the Pacific Northwest's famously gorgeous August weather, I spent four days surrounded by barely breathable air because of wildfires in nearby Washington state. A lot of other Americans have had a version of this experience, and sometimes much worse. 2018 has been the year that the effects of climate change have become much more obvious. Not just heat waves, but droughts, more extreme storms, and terrible wildfires. The Wolsey and the campfires have consumed more than 300,000 acres, destroyed more than 12,000 homes, and taken at least 80 lives. Point, what we're really watching is Hurricane Florence, and then you've got Isaac. We have seen debris flying, pieces of homes. And Florida's panhandle could be just about 48 hours away from a hurricane making landfall. So what can be done? Well, that's where things get tricky. Ross, I want to start with you because you're in a different place from me and Michelle on this. How worried are you about climate change right now? So I think climate change is a real problem, um, but I also think it is quite possibly an overstated one, um, including, honestly, in the way that you just framed some of the trends that we're seeing. In my reading of the evidence, it's not at all clear that extreme weather generally has gotten worse, that droughts have gotten worse, that hurricanes have gotten worse. That evidence is awfully murky. And generally, the trend over the last 20 or 25 years, the time in which we've obviously all been paying close attention to this, has been for the temperature on Earth to go up, but not at the rate that a lot of the climate projections of the 1990s suggested, which suggests to me that the Earth's atmosphere may be slightly less sensitive to CO2 than we feared. I think climate change is real. I think it's one problem among many that we face. I think that most of the policy responses to it haven't worked out that well. And, and so generally, I favor mitigation and adaptation over attempts to basically regulate the CO2 problem away. I'm not in a position 
to make a really coherent argument about the science. I mean, my position on the science is basically that I believe all of the scientists. You know, and so the consensus among scientists, national and international, is so overwhelming that it's hard for me to imagine what reading of the evidence, you know, particularly by a non-expert, would make any of us with our backgrounds think that we know better than the people who study this for a living. I mean, it's just so overwhelming. And the people who study this for a living in every part of the world, including in our own government, is not that things are moving at a slower rate than had been previously expected, but are actually kind of, you know, on the sort of more apocalyptic end of what was foreseen a few years ago. And to be honest, I tend to shut down a little bit around this issue because I find it so frightening. It fills me with such terror and also such shame about the world that I'm leaving my children, that we're all leaving our children. We already see all of these sorts of horrors that were predicted a few years ago are all starting to manifest in the world. And, you know, us here on the East Coast of the United States are going to be spared a lot of the worst of it, but there are parts of the world where people live right now that are going to become literally humanly uninhabitable. So in some ways, I feel like it's less a conversation, you know, particularly when you're dealing with three non-scientists, about the science and more about the psychology. I think there's some truth to that. I think that there are a lot of conservatives who look at the problem of climate change and at some level probably think to themselves, well, if this is real, then we don't just need massive regulation or tax increases on carbon. We need, you know, some sort of UN-run world government with incredible power over what every country has to do. And that is obviously antithetical to a lot of conservative ideas about limited government and national sovereignty and all of these things. And so because of that, I think you get a lot of conservatives making a faulty but all-too-human leap to if this analysis leads to policy conclusions that I reject, therefore I will reject the scientific analysis or assume that it's sort of, you know, a one-worlder plot or a sort of bureaucratic invention or something like that. What I don't understand is, as Michelle said, we can debate a lot of the science and the evidence here, right? Like, I think the evidence is really clear that extreme storms are happening more often and, and extreme rain is happening more often. And we've never had 10 years of heat like we've just had. And you think that I'm overstating the case by saying that. But as Michelle said, if we had a group of the best climate scientists in the world here, they'd be on my side. And I don't fully understand why the scientific consensus combined with the potential consequences here, even if the scientists are somewhat exaggerating this or a little bit wrong, really bad stuff's going to happen. And I don't understand why you and so many other conservatives don't share that fear that, hey, there's a whole bunch of reasons to think that this is going to be bad. And we're sort of trying to look at this with the most possible rose-colored glasses. So look, I mean, first of all, if you take the IPCC reports on climate change, you can actually read that report, the latest one online, and you will find that it actually agrees with me that there's a lot of uncertainty about 
increases in severe weather and storms and so on. And there are a number of really good scientific papers that suggest that so far there hasn't been an increase in severe weather. And that stuff actually matters. You know, so I, I mean, I think we have differences in the interpretation of the science and we also have differences in our assessment of the feasibility of what I think is your preferred policy response, right? I mean, you, you think that like the, the sort of broad, broadly speaking, the European model of, you know, putting a price on carbon, having cap and trade style programs and so on is something that is potentially deployable on a global scale and will bring down emissions faster. Is that, is that a fair summary of you guys' views or at least yours, David? I would say, one, I think scientists are are substantially more concerned about this than you're describing them as. Two, they are in favor of much more aggressive action than you or most conservatives are in favor of. And three, that means, given the risks and the evidence that we have, trying to be really aggressive and broad-based. So yes, it means putting a price on carbon the same way we did with acid rain under the George H.W. Bush administration. It means plowing a whole bunch of money into clean energy research, which I know conservatives are more comfortable with. And finally, sure, it means some of the mitigation ideas that you're talking about. But to me, the mitigation ideas in the end are fundamentally unambitious, right? They're sort of, oh, we can't do anything about this, and it probably won't be that bad, so let's see who we can move away from the coasts or or what we can build. And I guess I'm sufficiently alarmed by this, and I have some of the same dread that Michelle described at the beginning, that I would like to see something approaching an all-of-the-above strategy rather than saying, let's wall off a bunch of these things because they might be hard. I guess I don't think we should per se wall them off, right? I just think we have a lot of evidence from the last few decades that that approach doesn't get you anywhere near where you need to go for it to be meaningful. And you can look at this just in comparison between the United States and Europe. Right now, France is being brought to a standstill by these huge protests against Emmanuel Macron's government that are all about the price of fuel. And essentially, it's a protest against European climate change policies. The same basic political dynamics that make global action impossible even make continental action incredibly difficult. And I think that means that any solution has to come from some combination of technological breakthroughs, of which we've had some, and realistic mitigation, not in a sort of throw your hands up kind of way, but in a sense of like, look, California has a much more urbanized landscape, and in a warmer climate, it needs different fire policies than the ones that worked from 1930 through 1980. That's not throwing up your hands. That's dealing with reality, right? This is the place, Michelle, where I feel like conservatives do actually have a critique that causes me some more introspection than the debate about the science. Can you imagine a way in which the United States would actually pass meaningfully large taxes to get us to use less dirty energy? Because I'm not sure whether I can, and that depresses me. In relation to the uprisings in France, that's true. And, you know, raising taxes on energy is going to be really socially disruptive. Um, Something else that's going to be really socially disruptive is a huge influx of climate refugees. And I'm sometimes reluctant to make this argument. The bad thing about the destruction of climates in the developing world isn't sort of what it's going to do to us. It's what it's going to do to them. Right. But there is a sort of a racist argument for being concerned about climate change or a kind of nationalist argument for being concerned about climate change, which is that 
if you make large parts of the globe where people currently live uninhabitable, where do you think those people are going to go? And, you know, if you think that huge refugee influxes have been destabilizing so far, they're going to get a lot bigger. Yeah, I think that's a good argument. I think that is in many ways sort of the number one reason when you think about global stability to worry about climate change. But one that actually isn't what's going to drive the further increase of CO2 in the atmosphere. I mean, Western nations, while they aren't doing as effective a job maybe as they could, are reducing their CO2 footprint. And the problem that we have is that there are lots and lots of people in the world, especially in India and China, but elsewhere as well, who want the opportunity to live like middle-class Westerners. And there isn't anything that a charismatic American or European leader, a Barack Obama or Emmanuel Macron, you know, on, on steroids with magic powers, can do to persuade those people who are not Westerners that what they want should be sacrificed to avert catastrophe. I, I don't see, I mean... Again, well, I, I disagree. I mean, there was the Paris Climate Accord, which is obviously not a solution, but is a very small start. And there are all sorts of other kind of global international policies that you can pursue to make it worthwhile for people to develop renewable sources of energy instead of to kind of keep investing in types of energy that emit a lot of carbon. It's just that it requires global leadership from someone. And we've also seen China move a lot on this. I mean, China's not doing everything I would hope they do, but they're taking climate change much more seriously than they were a decade ago. And so uh, I agree China and India are a big problem, Ross, but it seems to me that saying, well, we're not, we're going to pretend the problem doesn't exist doesn't make it more likely that we will persuade them uh, to do what needs to be done. Again, it falls under this category of this is a big problem. We should be trying everything we can. But the U.S. isn't pretending that it doesn't exist. We've spent a lot of money on green energy. We have some of the leading alternative energy research in the world. And we have, in fact, cut our emissions just as much as Europe, with its complicated jerry-rigged cap-and-trade schemes, has managed to do. And this is also part of sort of where conservatives are, are coming from on this, I think, in a way that I, I don't completely share. But there are a lot of conservatives whose, whose view is basically that, you know, the solution here is technological breakthroughs, and those technological breakthroughs are going to emerge out of dynamic free market competition, not through you know, sort of heavy-handed regulation. I think there are clear limits to that analysis, and there are obviously situations where the market isn't a god and regulation is necessary. But I think comparing the stories of America and Europe over the last 30 years on this issue doesn't necessarily undercut the conservative view. I guess Michelle mentioned before this idea that a charismatic leader could change the politics of it. I don't think the Democratic Party is going to reorient its politics around this one issue. I actually think the most likely thing to change the politics of this is the weather. I think we already see the politics changing just a little bit over the last couple of years. And I hate saying this, but whether it is the, the kind of uh, migration that Michelle described before, or whether it's another storm like Superstorm Sandy or a storm like the ones that hit Texas or Puerto Rico. I think we're going to have a lot more of this. And I think a lot more people are going to die from climate change. And I think that has the most potential to change the politics of this. And I mean, I guess, Ross, imagine for a minute that this actually is on the worst end of things because you said you think it's uncertain. What would your advice be to 
people who are really worried about the climate to get other people to take this more seriously? That's a good question. Um, I, I think that I agree with you, basically, that you'll get a different politics when the real world costs become more apparent. This sounds like circular reasoning in a sense, and maybe it is, but I think the fact that you don't have that real world politics is a sign that the costs have not been that substantial. Um, but I mean, to change my mind, I, I was being totally serious. I don't think there is clear evidence that extreme weather generally has increased. The more clear evidence I see that extreme weather has increased, the more I will worry about climate change. Here's the crazy thing. I think you're wrong. I think scientists would say overwhelmingly you're wrong. And yet, of course, on some basic level, I hope you're right because I would be very glad to have been too worried and to have the damage from climate change be much less bad than I fear it will be. Even if it lets the hosts of Fox and Friends say, I told you so in 20 years, even then? Even if it lets them say, I told you so. Yes, that's how worried I yeah, am. Yeah, me too. This podcast is supported by WISE, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. Dining in dollars? Doing business in bot. Wherever life takes you, the WISE account helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast. WISE is the easy way to connect all your finances internationally. Freelancing in France? No problem. Sending money back to mom? Simple. All without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by visiting wise.com slash NYT. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. Next, a debate from the Democratic presidential campaign trail back in December 2019 that is no less relevant today called Should College Be Free? The cost of college is a big burden for many people, and it's become a hot political topic as well. The big question in progressive policy circles is whether public college should be free, paid for with taxes rather than tuition payments and loans from students and their families. Pete Buttigieg has sharpened the debate in recent weeks by running an ad criticizing the idea of free college, saying it's too much of a handout to the wealthy. I believe we should move to make college affordable for everybody. There are some voices saying, well, that, that doesn't count unless you go even further, unless it's free even for, for the kids and millionaires. But I only want to make promises that we can keep. Look, Buttigieg favors free college for lower and middle-income families. Bernie Sanders, on the other hand, prefers free public college for everyone. It's a classic debate between universal and targeted social programs. And it's fascinating both in its own right and as a symbol of the larger left versus center debate in the Democratic primary. Michelle, I'm mostly with Mayor Pete on this one. Free college for everyone just doesn't seem to me like a good use of resources. And it also seems to bother a lot of swing voters. So I don't think it's worth the political cost. But I'm really interested in what you've thought about this whole debate. 
Well, David, I mean, you don't think that kind of millionaires and billionaires are going to start sending their kids to public college if it's free, right? I mean, the argument itself is sort of, it might be politically astute, but it seems sort of disingenuous. And I think Democrats in general have, should have been pointing out a lot more that this idea of free college is not a new thing. The UC system was free until the 70s. You know, the CUNY system, which produced a lot of the kind of leading conservative minds in the country was also free until the 1970s. And so this isn't some sort of departure like Medicare for all. This is actually the way sort of public education used to be and kind of bringing market mechanisms into public universities has been sort of a disaster. My fear about what happens if you have, you know, free college for, say, everybody under $100,000 is that it creates incentives, which you already see in some of these state university systems, to really focus on bringing in the families that can kind of subsidize everyone else. I've been to public colleges in Arizona where because there's less and less money from the state, there's more and more of an emphasis on getting out-of-state students from California, which has created this sort of arms race of amenities while basic, you know, kind of educational functions are ignored. I'm not sure you have that exact problem if you just have free college for people whose families make under six figures. But I do think that... um, The idea that it's kind of obviously going to function better is, you know, untested at best. Look, Buttigieg is obviously trying to score some rhetorical points here by talking about paying for college of millionaires and billionaires. But there is a larger point that's true here, which is, Michelle, the the world you worry about creating is a world that I think we already have. So I don't have a problem with getting to a world in which all college is free. But the idea that we would start now by making all college free to me has two really big problems. One, it really is regressive. It really is sending a lot of benefits to people like high-income professionals who don't need the help relative to most Americans. And two, it's not obviously a political winner. And so it might be a political loser. The polling sort of mixed on it. And so I guess I just prefer an approach that one is going to help more people that need help and two might actually be more popular and make it more likely that Donald Trump loses. And so that's why I prefer the Buttigieg approach. So Dustin, I guess my question, and I'm more on David's side, but I'll play devil's advocate a little bit, is that I think the strongest case for various socialistic proposals is that we've set up markets in healthcare and education in this country that just don't work at all because nobody knows what the prices are. You know, I am a upper middle class professional trying to figure out what I need to save for college. And if I look at like sort of elite college tuition rates going forward, I have no idea how that interacts with these incredibly opaque financial aid systems that are there to sort of milk just the right amount of money out of each group and so on. And that is both a deterrent for low income people applying to college at all because they get sticker shock and look at these prices that aren't real prices and don't apply. And it's a source of endless stress for parents and to some extent kids. And Buttigieg's proposal, it probably adds to some of that complexity and stress to some extent, even as it reduces it for lower income people, right? Like, 
there is an advantage in terms of how people interact with bureaucracy and how people interact with these systems to just say, yeah, these schools cost money and these schools are free. And look, we love to denigrate American high schools today, but historically, they're this unbelievable success story. America moved toward universal high school education before Europe, and our economy benefited enormously. And that's basically the argument that, to some extent, you each are making. And I I guess I would love to get to a world in which at least two years of college are free for everyone, and, and maybe four. But A little bit as with Medicare for all, the idea of saying this is what the Democrats are really going to kind of double down on, decide it's what they really want, free college for all, as opposed to a really ambitious climate bill or as opposed to a wealth tax, which I like. To me, it's just not exactly worth it. And you get a huge portion of the benefit without the downsides by doing a more targeted approach. And by the way, I prefer Buttigieg to Biden's approach. Biden's approach is free community college for all, which I've written positive things about. But I also like the idea that we don't tell poorer kids that the only way to get the benefits of this program are go to a community college. And we say to them, you can also get it by going to a four-year college. But you're right. Uh, The plan that I'm talking about is more complicated. It's cheaper, but it's more complicated than the idea of free college, period, for everybody. I'm willing to concede that there might be a short-term political benefit when it comes to defeating Donald Trump. But I would also say that if a Democrat gets elected, They're going to have a much better chance, I think, of kind of starting from the position of what they really want and negotiating from there rather than starting with a halfway measure and maybe if they're lucky getting to free community college. Yeah, and I I think I'm skeptical that this is I think Medicare for all, as proposed by Warren and Sanders, is very unpopular. I think this would be much less unpopular and would not be an issue that would help reelect Trump per se. I'll now switch sides and make the <laughs> and make the opposite argument. I mean, I think there is there is a case on the one hand that the four year college model is sort of oversubscribed actually in America right now, and what we need is more sort of more people going to community colleges, trade school, continuing education, more investment in that space, and that makes me more sympathetic to the Biden proposal in that it sort of very specifically directs resources there rather than towards the college system as a whole. I, I also think there's a an argument that seems pretty plausible, which is that, you know, David, you mentioned how the American high school system was the envy of the Western world. Well, right now, the American college system, as horrible as it is in six different ways, is considered by a lot of people to be better than the college systems in Western Europe. And one reason it's better is that it is well-funded in lots of ways, in part because it induces parents to part with their money. And college becomes free, and then that becomes a justification for state governments to say, look, these kids at these state schools are getting a free education. They don't need lavish amenities. They don't need high-paid faculty. We're going to cut the higher ed budget. And pretty quickly, it would actually end up starving a lot of middle and lower tier colleges of revenue, even as the rich private colleges, which are the ones whose revenue you should actually be cutting, would be doing fine. I think that's actually a pretty plausible description of how how free college might actually end up undercutting the colleges. But the argument against that is that that's precisely what happens when it is only free for, you know, the sort of bottom tiers, right? When when free college is something that, say, 
80% of families can take advantage of, you have much more just sort of social buy-in, right? Just as there's much more protectiveness around Medicare than there is around Medicaid because of who gets it. It creates a constituency for this that is much harder for politicians to ignore. Thanks for listening or re-listening. We'll be back in your feed next week with a little teaser as to the big things we've got planned and expect our relaunch in your feed Wednesday, February 24th. These two debates were produced by Transmitter Media. And before we go, a little snippet from the argument's first ever recommendation that remains my favorite to this day. Ross, take it away. So, you know, it's a it's a reactionary song. That's what I like about it. You know, it starts out, Tell me something, girl. Are you happy in this modern world? Obviously, the answer is no, because modernity is bad. Or do you need more? Is there something that you're searching for? Like, you know, Roman Catholicism, hypothetically. I mean, I, I can go on, but I think I think you get the idea.